0: On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar. Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by ROAR? The beauty of ROAR is that it's both an acronym, the acronym stands for reflection, opportunity, action, and relationships, and it's an action. We're all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that's often suppressed by fear. That power is your ROAR and it's waiting to be unleashed. There is one thing that is foundational to every relationship, every team, family, organization, nation, economy, and civilizations throughout the world. The one thing which, if removed, will destroy the most powerful governments, the most successful businesses, the most thriving economies, the most influential leadership, the greatest friendships, the strongest character, and the deepest love. On the other hand, if we can develop it, it can be leveraged. And this one thing has the potential to create Phenomenal success and prosperity in every aspect of our lives. Yet, it is the least understood, the most neglected, and the most underestimated possibility in our lives. And that one thing is trust. Trust impacts us every day of our life. Trust is one of the most valuable currencies among humans, it undergirds and affects the quality of every relationship, every communication, every effort we're engaged in. Trust is indispensable and it's foundational in every aspect of our life. It is the one thing that changes everything. My guest today, Bill Hepperman, is going to give us a game plan for establishing trust quickly, whether at home or at work. Let me tell you a little bit more about Bill. He is a phenomenal organizational development leader who is committed to creating high-performing workplaces where people thrive. He has a broad experience in organizational development org design, change leadership, resilience and thriving, and human performance improvement. He has led initiatives across a range of companies, countries, and cultures for more than 25 years. Bill is everyone's go-to guy for his deep subject matter expertise, backed by a positive, creative, and practical approach. He's an expert facilitator and an engaging fun instructor. He is phenomenal at guiding teams and leaders through the tough issues and challenging times we face today, helping them find common ground, clarity, and alignment. I was so fortunate to partner with Bill in my first role as a manager at Intel. At the time, I had been a peer in the organization, and due to some changes in the organization, I later became the manager of that team. His coaching, his insight and guidance was invaluable to helping me establish a very strong foundation of trust from day one with my new team. And uh, for that, I'll be forever grateful. So let's welcome Bill to the show.
1: Hey there, Lakeisha. I'm super happy to be here.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. As I was sharing with the audience, um, you have been just so instrumental in my career. I would say over the last 12 years, right? Uh, In some form or fashion, I've taken... You know, guidance and and leverage your tremendous insight on so many topics as it relates to developing high performing teams. You know, building trust very quickly. You know, I think you and I partnered in my first manager role at Intel. If you remember that,
1: (laughs) right? I do remember.
0: And we spent some time really helping me come in as a new leader to an existing organization and really figure out how to build trust, uh, build relationships, and really establish that foundation that ultimately led us to becoming an award-winning team. So thank you.
1: Yeah, you bet. Well, you made, you made my job easy. You were just a really great manager and, and your, your eagerness to learn and to grow and to do the right thing was really notable and, and really made the whole thing just made me look smart.
0: Oh, you're too, kind. You're too, kind. Well, listen, I mean, you know, we're going to spend some time talking about building trust and building trust quickly. And I know you've got um, a lot of great tips that you're going to be able to share with us based on your, you know, know, 25 plus years in the industry and working with teams. But before we kind of jump into trust, I'd love to just give the audience an opportunity to learn a little bit about you and, and really see why I'm just so excited to have you on the show. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing up?
1: So I grew up in the East Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, in Danville, and then I went uh, from there to UC Santa Barbara, where I was a biology major. Wow! And, and then I one of the formative experiences that I had was was my junior year. I took that uh, to go to France and uh, spent a year there, and that was my first out of country experience. And and then from there. As a result of that, living overseas, I just loved it so much that I signed up for the Peace Corps after getting my biology degree in the early 80s. And I went to Nepal with, with the Peace Corps, where I was a math science teacher, an English teacher, in a remote hill village. And it was there, in working with the community and doing some community development, that I really got enamored with this idea of working with basically healthy groups of people and, and helping them work better together, et cetera. But I didn't know there was this thing called organization development. And then so when I came back to the United States and I was actually it was just this this serendipitous thing where I was sitting around a campfire with some people who knew about organization development. And they're like, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, I'm like, well, I really want to work, you know, do this thing. And they said, oh, that's called organization development. I said, wait a minute back up that's a thing you know right and as I could almost hear the the, the music co- op- the clouds open up and the light shine down it's like this is gonna be your life you I know?
0: love it ah!
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I went and found a graduate program at, at Sonoma State like you know pre-internet you just got to make a few phone calls and and that was in the you know early 90s when I got my master's degree in organization development and then since then I've spent time in and out of Organizations, uh, as a consultant, both consulting internally, like I did at Intel for 12 years, and then as an external consultant over several times doing work in organization design, organization development, change management, and all these other things. But in terms of, you know, I was thinking about this question about so my early influences, and you know, the people that really came to mind for me were throughout my life, both elementary school, junior high, high school, and college, I had these really tremendous teachers. And obviously not every one of them, but but in every year there was somebody that was that made a connection with me and saw me for who I am and 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 recognized me and treated me like a person and and you know showed an interest in me. I mean I, I came from a kind of a, a broken background, uh you know, just just a messed up family scene when I was younger and so I didn't I didn't get that you know kind of role model at home but I really found it in my teachers and and then also interestingly you know it's funny we, we think of those major influences always being adults but it's interesting to know Marcus Buckingham talked about this that in, in many ways our greatest influences aren't so much our those adults but our peers and who, yes. are, those, who are those peers that we hung out with and and I happened to You know, I made a shift when I went from junior high to high school and went from kind of a rowdy crowd and just not terribly nice people to connecting with a new group of guys and and, and people in high school that were much more chill, much more, much more kind, you know, much more sort of wholesome people. And and they were a big influence on me in my life as well. Yeah. So as a combination of, of teachers and just being around great people.
0: Wow, I love that, and I love what you talked about—just your opportunity and the tremendous experience that you must have had being in Nepal, right? In a totally new country, new culture, and just finding ways to help other people, right? And I'm sure seeing their lives transform in, in, in numerous ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and you, you talk about trust building. You know, here you are—you come into the you come into this village that's you know an agrarian village with no running water and no electricity and and, you know, it's three days walk from the roadhead. And here you are, you're a very different person. And, and you know, you're somewhat suspect uh, mm-hmm. over time. And, and but that trust, you know, here in, you know, in particularly in, in, in California, West Coast, you know, we establish trust pretty quickly. Whereas in some of these older cultures, it, it trust establishes more slowly over time. And. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I found out later in the later part of my Peace Corps experience that at first there were several of the teachers that I was working with that didn't trust me mm-hmm. um, and they were very suspect of me, but that it was only over time that we developed this camaraderie and they saw me, you know, get tested on certain circumstances and we got to know each other and eventually we developed a really strong bond.
0: Love it. So to your point, that was your first opportunity right there, right? Um, kind of dropped into another place right not knowing a soul and really having to build rapport uh, very quickly and it sounds like through your work and your efforts they began to gain trust in you
1: yeah no absolutely And, and it's kind of funny i hadn't made that connection before but but really being an organizational consultant very much the same thing you're always sort of airdropped into these situations and very quickly have to establish trust
0: well when you think back on your experiences growing up that really shaped you to be who you are today you know, what stands out as a defining moment that helped you really kind of uncover your roar? And it could have been the Nepal experience.
1: Well, there are a few things. Actually, there was a much younger experience that I was reminded of just recently when I was backpacking in, in Yosemite National Park. And when I was in my sophomore year, uh, summer of high school, between my sophomore and junior year, I and three other 16-year-old guys we had arranged, we had organized a walk, uh, a long trek on the Pacific Crest Trail from Mount Lassen down to Mount Whitney, which is about almost 600 miles. Wow. And where we had food drops, you know, along the way. And here we were, you know, just like super green behind the ears. And, but we did this thing and we organized it largely on our own. And, you know, and it was such a tremendous sense of achievement. And it really connected me so deeply to the Sierra Nevada mountains in particular, in, in which I spent many, many years after that in the wilderness, backpacking in the wilderness and, and with friends over time. And so that, that was one super formative experience. I'd say also, you know, I was very active in student government. I was a captain of soccer team and, and all those things. And, and those initial experiences, some successful, some tremendous failures, were real great character building events. And then obviously, while well, the other big seminal uh, sort of occurrence, I don't have an event so much about Gimme a Roar, but but going over and living in France for a year and being very becoming very fluent in another language, really, I, I think that's where I have really felt my roar is when I have been a man in the world, a person in the world, very fluent in another culture and able to adapt and move and groove in another language. And I had that same experience again, obviously, in Nepal, which really gave me my roar because there I was living in, you know, very, very uh, rough conditions with some very lovely people and, you know, fighting, you know, the various illnesses and stomach problems and everything else that you oftentimes suffer in living in the third world. But I'd say ultimately my greatest influence or my greatest, you know, impact on me and my, my character was the people of Nepal And the students that I taught and seeing there, they're just people of such tremendous character and kindness and and love. And, you know, these are people who, you know, have the only clothes they have or the clothes they're wearing on their back and they'll they'll have like, you know, a a piece of fruit and they'll go, hey, you want half of my fruit? And it's like, sure, but that's the last piece of, that's the only thing you have, you know? And they're like, "Eh, Well, I'll find more, you know?
0: Oh my gosh. We'll talk about life-changing and, and uh, yeah. kind of shaped you in your future, right? I mean, think you came back focused on people and that's why you're so good at what you do. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much. Well, let's talk about really kind of how that's really, those experiences have really been foundational um, and really, I think kind of launched you down a path that I'm excited to talk to you about, right? And that is building, right.
1: growth,
0: um, establishing trust very quickly. And so I know you've got a lot of good things to share um, on this topic. Let's maybe kind of jump in and maybe talk about, you know, what can organizations do today to really start to create a high trust culture. And it's it's an interesting time, right? I mean, we're you know right. living in COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, we're living in a world that's really polarizing in so many aspects from a societal perspective. You know, a lot of different environmental factors that could really create those uh, environments of distrust, to be honest with you. And so love to just hear your take on kind of where we are today. And as many of us are working in these corporate environments, right? organizations do, what can we do to start to foster, uh, you know, trusting environments?
1: Well, so there's, there's lots of levers here to pull on, but if we kind of chunk it up into some major buckets, I think that there are, because leadership and organizational culture are so closely tied we can almost speak of them as one mm-hmm. but i think that the the actions and the walk and the talk of leadership in organizations has a huge impact on trust and i will talk about that in a second let me just break it down Absolutely. a little bit and then you also have another there's the relationship between everyone's that themselves and their immediate manager or immediate supervisor the person who you know taking Charge of them and, and, and watching their performance and supporting their development. That relationship is so fundamental to, to developing trust in an organization. And then you have you know the organizational culture as expressed through the organizational systems and processes and structures. And some of those you know you and I worked for a company in which when we first started working for that company, they were performance management system was was pretty rough and tumble and. It was sort of, you know, there was a almost a quota, if you will, for, you know, X percent needs to get this this low rating. And so you have those kind of rack and stack performance management systems that drive, I think, drive a lot of mistrust and are very sort of inhumane in many ways. And and a lot of that, a lot of those old systems, some companies still do it that way, but a lot of people have have learned from their mistakes and are, in fact, have much more humane, much more growth-oriented performance management systems. So we can talk about those three things, about leadership, fundamental relationship between manager and employee, and then some of the organizational systems and processes.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, those are all very important aspects of you know, trying to establish trust because you're working in an environment where um, you've got teams of people who all have different objectives and you've got to start to kind of build those bridges of trust quickly. Talk a little bit about the importance of authenticity and vulnerability and establishing trust in these uh, corporate environments and, and the likes.
1: Yeah, you know, it's kind of number one, right? So, you know, the, the model that make you make me think of it when you talk about authenticity and vulnerability, I mean, there's, there's Brene Brown's work around vulnerability that's very important. But before that, I don't know if it was before that, she might argue otherwise, but, but Patrick Lencioni and, and the Table Group and their work with the, the five dysfunctions of a team, but, and at the foundation of that pyramid, it's a very, very well-known model. But at the foundation of this five-layer pyramid is trust, mm-hmm. is trust. And in fact, we use this model when we first, when I, I used this model when I was first working with your team. And we even used some of the exercises from Patrick Lencioni and that that the table group from around developing trust in the team. And, and in that, you know, they, he was talking about the importance of vulnerability in trust, that I can only trust you if you're showing up in a very authentic, genuine, uh, vulnerable way in which you're willing to show your strengths, your weaknesses, your uncertainties, you know, all of it combined, that we're able to see who you are and you're able to see who I am. Because when when you show me that you're vulnerable and that you're authentic and that you're willing to be a mensch, you're willing to be a human being, then I then have permission to do that as well. And I will show up I won't hide information. If I don't, if I'm feeling, you know, scared or or, or, or challenged with something, I'm not going to try to hide it from you. I'm going to be upfront with you about it. I'm going to be a human being, I'm be authentic. And without that vulnerability, without that openness and that authenticity, there is no trust. There really is no
0: trust. I mean, you're spot on, you're spot on, right? I mean, how can we kind of building on a, the Lencioni model, right? Absolutely. I mean, but, you know, what are some things that managers and leaders can do to foster trust? We talked about right. vulnerability. What are some maybe some actionable, tangible things that we can do to build trust, especially right now, where many people are onboarding in new organizations in a remote environment? You know, the likelihood of being able to see uh, your teammates and your managers is, you know, we've got another 12 months probably. But love to just get your perspective on some tangible, actionable things that you think we can do to start to foster trust more.
1: So, you know, I think the great source of information on that question is the work of Paul Zak in his book, The Trust Factor. And he wrote an HBR article called The Neuroscience of Trust. Yes. And I really love this because he really breaks it down and he breaks it down on a scientific basis. There's some really great science behind it because what he did was he measured people's oxytocin levels. Oxytocin is it's, it's actually a stress hormone, but it's part of our, our makeup. And when we, Feel close to other people when we hug other people when we have camaraderie with other people our oxytocin levels increase mm-hmm. and so he used measures of of oxytocin to gauge okay what helps garner trust what breaks trust what can organizations do what can people do to foster trust and then he was able to he was able to measure it you know and it was it's a tremendous it's a tremendous body of work so he has this this model and we you know we won't break it down here or unpack it here entirely, but it's, he actually has this, you know, based on the word oxytocin. Each chapter is O X Y, you know, right? But there, there's a few big things that for me are real, real takeaways. Without unpacking the whole thing, sure. One is that that people see or people trust that the organization and the, and its leaders are being transparent with information. Mm-hmm. That. Nobody's trying to pull anything over anybody's eyes. You know, everybody's, you know, they're, they're telling the hard truths. They're saying, they're, they're, they're you know, they're celebrating their victories, but they're also being very free and frank with what's not working and what needs to change in an organization. And also, you know, where they've screwed up. When people, leaders that say, hey, I made a mistake, but here's what I learned and here's how we're going to fix that and here's how, you know, and and we're also going to look at how we can prevent that from happening in the future. That garners a lot of trust. I mean, when you think about some of the great downfalls of our celebrities and our politicians and and people in our lives, the ones I think that we tend to admire most are those that are transparent and that do actually say, mea culpa, I screwed up and boy, oh boy, did I learn something and I'll never do that again, you know? And, And we as people, there's something in us, and I'm sure it's probably part of our hardwiring, part of our eons of evolution, where we're ready. You know, most of us are ready to forgive that kind of authenticity and that kind of, or that person who is that open and authentic and really shows, you know, contrition, etc. But anyway, so there's that. So there's that 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 transparency. The second factor is that I have a sense that you get me. That you're focused on me, you're not this sort of narcissistic leader, but that you're really focused on. You're a servant leader. You know, mm. You're focused on servant leadership, and you're focused on enabling my performance. Because the great leaders, you know, they don't run great organizations because they're and they're by doing it all themselves. In fact, those that try to do it all themselves are usually, you know, have famous failures. But those leaders that see themselves as and act as servants to the people that they support to inspire them, to enable them, to give them the tools that they need, to see them for who they are, to give them the autonomy that they need, to allow them to use the strengths and the gifts that they have to bring to bear on the organizational problems and opportunities. That bit there is another huge lever in driving trust when I see that you see me and you're focused and interested in in my performance and my excellence. And that you also invest in my my learning as well, you know. When somebody trusts you by saying, "Hey, you know, I I want to send you to this thing, uh, this development opportunity. It's a little spendy, and you know, but I really believe in you, and I want to invest in you, and it's, and I think you can really use these skills to help us be better." That's another one. The other one that I mentioned was around autonomy. That I'm not being micromanaged, right? That when you give me a goal or you help me ascertain a goal or clarify a goal. And then, you know, you help me if I ask for it, you're there to help me figure out how, but you're not there to dictate the how, right? That I have the, the opportunity to get it done. Obviously, not just willy-nilly because I've got to work within the organizational, you know, uh, boundaries and, and uh, uh, you know, sidewalls to, to work within the system. But nonetheless, I have a chance to, to be able to do that on my own for myself, you know, in the way that I see fit.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting, right? I never I never connected the a chemical in our brains that can really enable me to to trust people faster, right? Or so something of that sort. It was just very yeah. interesting to, to read that research and and the study that he did there. Powerful. So let's talk a little bit about really. Um, you've given us some tips and tools based on Paul Zach's research, right? In terms of how we can start to foster trust as managers and leaders, right? Uh, authenticity, vulnerability. Empowerment, enabling um, the teams to uh, figure out how to get to Portland on their own. Right? Hey, we can say right. hey, we go to Portland, but I'm going to let you figure out how to get us there, and giving them the autonomy and freedom to be able to do that, and really just uh, the transparency. Yeah, I think super, important. But when we think about, you know, what are the benefits of high trust organization to the business itself? Right? I mean, I figure if we oh, think yeah. about culture and it's trusting, what should we expect? I mean, if we make the investment, I'm assuming we're going to get a pretty good return. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, and actually, the person who really breaks that down nicely is Stephen Covey Jr. In his book, The Speed of Trust, which you mentioned earlier, basically what his research says, and lots of other research says, is that trust both helps us lower costs and increase organizational speed. If you think about it, just in terms of an everyday example. If I have a trusting relationship with you as a as a customer, and you have a trust, you know, we have a trusting relationship. And we've got to write a statement of work. And if there's not that that prior experience and that 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 foundation of trust, then you know, then we're going to lawyer up, and we're going to, you know, spend an inordinate amount of time writing contracts and, and, and <laughs> going over, you know, all the language and, and really being super careful about it, et cetera. Whereas, if we have a track record with one another and, and a deep foundation of trust, that contract will come together that much faster and without all the second guessing and without all the the legalese. But, you know, it doesn't mean we can't clarify that, that we shouldn't clarify the language and we don't need accountability and all that stuff, but it just happens so much faster. And because it happens faster, the cost of doing business goes down as well. The other thing is that with regard to the speed of trust is when I have a trusting relationship with someone and something happens where there's going to be a mistake or a problem or some issue, you know, they're not going to try to hide it. They're gonna. They're all going They're gonna feel like, hey, we're all part of one thing, and you're not gonna cream me if I if I tell you that I screwed up or that or that we're gonna run into a problem. So I'm not gonna hide that from you. So then we can get to resolving that that problem or that issue that much faster. Um, and again, thereby lowering the cost of doing business.
0: Love it, love it. Uh, uh, basically, what I hear you say is, the more we invest in trust, it actually enables us to get the results that we're looking for that much faster. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about character and competency and trust. I know you, you mentioned a little bit uh, just uh, your experience. Oh, yeah. Right. How, and how that shaped your character. Talk about the importance of the two seeds, so to speak, uh, in, in order right. that uh, we're developing today.
1: Right. So I love that model from, again, going back to the speed of trust from Stephen Covey. He has this uh, pretty well-known graphic uh, in that's a tree. And the trunk and the roots are character. And then the branches and the the leaves, the crown of the tree, are competence. And basically what he talks about is that, you know, character is that foundational integrity that someone has, that character that they have, that, that their moral, their moral navigation, their moral foundation, Their ethical foundation, that they're in it for not themselves and their own selfish desires, but that they're really in it for the greater common good. And that's character, right? But character without competence, it's nice, but it doesn't get the job done. And then, so I might trust you as a person, you have a lovely heart, you're a wonderful person, you're kind, you're caring. But if I need to trust you, you know, to build a ship or, you know, to do something, and you're not that person that can do that, then I'm not going to trust you in that way. I'm not going to trust your competence. I might trust your, your character, and you might be a great person to hang out with and go on vacation with, but I'm not going to entrust you with this very important mission that I have to achieve. And I can just share a, a quick little story that, that exemplifies and the importance of making that distinction between character trust and incompetence trust is that, you know, my wife has a friend, a very dear friend who's a wonderful person, but she, she just doesn't execute things very well. And she always shows up late. And, you know, and, and when my wife, when we had small kids, it was always kind of a bother to try to do something with this person because you couldn't really rely on her executing, you know, any kind of schedule or any kind of calendar being in a certain place at a certain time. And to, you know, to a parent with small children, those are very important things, right? So, and she's like, I'm going to talk to my friend and, and I, you know, I got I to tell her I don't trust her. And I said, well, um, hang on, back up, come back, I, we, come here. We got to talk about this for a second. So, let me tell you, and so I, I had just been reading the speed of trust. And I said, so so tell me, like, here's this distinction between character trust and competence trust. So let's talk about character trust. You trust her as a person, you know, her integrity, her heart, her, you know, her intentions. She's like, oh, God, she's got a heart of gold and she really means well and everything. I was like, okay. So it's really her execution that you really have a problem with. She goes, yeah. I said, well, that, that's a conversation you need to have. It's not that you don't, not that you don't trust her, but you, you don't trust her ability in these situations to execute to the needs of the situation. And then you can focus on that problem. And so she then had the conversation with that person and she said it went, it went really well because she was able to make that distinction with her. Like, look, I love you, in person, but here's this thing that we got to fix.
0: Yeah. So as you talk about that, because, you know, when we have these situations that crop up around trust, right, where there may be a perception that there is um, a lack of trust or accountability, you know, to that point, it can feel a little icky to start to have those conversations. Absolutely, and I mean what you just described was you know a situation with your wife where she had to evaluate: is it competence or character? How can we navigate that? You know, when we we can stop and take a moment and say, okay, what is the real issue? What am I really challenged by? Is there some advice that you can give us in terms of how we can approach those situations? Because you know, I'm sure your wife wanted to keep the relationship intact,
1: right? But she also needed to deal with the issue, <laughs> right? That she's right. experiencing. So how might we are approach that well you know what comes to mind is the book uh crucial conversations Mm -hmm. and the uh by vital smarts people and they talk about that you need to figure out what's the conversation that you're having is it about sort of tactical micro level of this thing happened and we need i want to talk about this thing that happened (laughs) or is it about a pattern like in this in this case with example from my my wife's conversation with a friend this was a pattern Mm -hmm. that had developed and so they needed to talk about that pattern and then they talk about in in crucial conversations that the third level out is about relationship and that's down actually more in the character or that the pattern has gone on so long and people have made maybe they've made promises of like okay i'll never happen again and then it happens again and then at that outer, that, that, that deepest level, then it's about relationships. So in many ways, you need to sort of uh, first understand and clarify for yourself, what's the conversation that you need to have? Mm-hmm. Is it about a point in time? Is it about something that happened? Or is it about a pattern? Or has it even come to the level of relationship? And those, quite honestly, I'm not in love with those conversations. And those are really hard conversations to have at that level.
0: Got it. Um, yeah, super important. But, Thank you for that.
1: But, but knowing what conversation you're having is, is half the battle.
0: You're absolutely right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Because we definitely want to uh, keep those relationships. I want to circle back on something you and I um, discussed recently around establishing trust and the importance of authenticity and vulnerability. And uh, there was a very real tangible example in the media a few weeks ago. I'd love for you to maybe unpack that because it was a lot of good insights I learned from that conversation with you, uh, Bill. You care to share?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Because you and I had talked about already doing this podcast. And then I saw this story in the paper about Dak Prescott, a quarterback for Dallas Cowboys, and who had, in an interview, been talking about how he had been, during COVID, as a result of not being able to work out and, and, all, and everything that's happening, but that he found himself experiencing some depression. And he was just really super, super human, super transparent about that. And then this sportscaster, Skip Bayless, you know, kind of dinged him for that on, on air and, and criticized him for being weak, for being, you know, for being so vulnerable that he's a leader and leaders aren't vulnerable like that you know, really, obviously not somebody who's, who's read a lot of Brene Brown. And in response, you know, Dak was talking about the fact that, you know, I've got to be a human being with my guys because we all have to be able to be vulnerable with one another so that we can support one another. Because And when I'm vulnerable to my guys, they're going to be vulnerable for me. And they're, they're not going to try to hide stuff. And they're, we're all going to be able to work with one another, for one another, um, because of that vulnerability, not in spite of that vulnerability. And I just thought it was a beautiful example of vulnerability in leadership, and how important that is. And also about our, you know, I mean, Skip Bayless. I'm sure is not a, a bad person, but he, but he, you know, has that's a very sort of typical view and a very limited view of what leadership means and what it means to be. You know, a man for that, or be a person, and what it means to be, what it means to have what, what really truly is courage and, and vulnerability. And it's not toughness, it's not endurance, it's not about being Superman, it's about being human and being willing to show that. Love it, love
0: it. I mean, what you're saying is when you show up as a vulnerable human being, you give others permission to do the same thing. And that's when the, uh, the real relationship begins, I think, right? And that trust, that foundation is established.
1: Absolutely. And it doesn't mean that we're going to be, you know, that, that nobody's going to be held accountable. See, I think that's what the thing that that, that folks who subscribe to that other view of you've always got to be tough is that somehow being vulnerable, being kind, showing love, showing softness is somehow a weakness, right? And what we see in fact, in the course of real human interaction is that it's only by being able to be real with one another, that true strength can develop within our, ourselves and in our relationships with other people.
0: I love it. I love it. I mean, if we were to think of trust as a bank account, he, he really put made a huge deposit, Dak Prescott did in that moment, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Complete and total.
0: So a couple of things I want to ask, right? Again, because as I said, we're, we're all kind of in this uh, new world with COVID-19 and this Work from home environment, and uh, you know we've got teams. We're still trying to make sure we have those connections. Just really quickly, maybe if there are a couple of things that come to mind that you think we could do on a day to day basis um, as members of teams to start to, I would say, even make more deposits in our trust account with each other as team members, um, and even amongst our family and and friends relationships. What are some simple things that you think we can do to kind of strengthen those relationships and strengthen the trust foundation?
1: That's such a great question, and this is such uncharted, you know, new territory yes. for all of us. You know, I think there are a lot of things that, in the normal working world of the the three dimensional go to the office kind of working world, that there's a lot of that that still holds. I mean, in terms of authenticity, vulnerability, yes. clarity of expectations, mm-hmm. holding, holding people accountable in a good way, focusing on their development. All those things are all super important still, but it's even more challenging, A, to do them because of just the separation you're talking through now through a Zoom screen or a Teams right. screen or whatever, and there's just that, that loss of, of connectivity. And you also miss out on some of those spontaneous interactions of running into people in the hallway, or right. you know, or in the cafeteria, or whatever it is, wherever you run into them, or on the works on the worksite, and making connections that way. So that that becomes more challenging. But there's a few, uh, I think, issues that are particularly important in this COVID slash remote way of working. and And you know, just a word on that quickly is that. I don't think that this is that we're gonna go back to some golden age of how it was before. I mean, I think that I, I think that a lot of these now sure, there are a lot of people who do wanna go back to the office, but you know, some of the some of the polls I've seen and some of the stuff I've seen in, in even in our own company, that some people never wanna go back. Some people absolutely wanna go back because their kids are driving them crazy <laughs> or you know, or whatever. <laughs> And then other people are like, you know, are sort of indifferent, but that whole, that whole world before where the remote workers were the weirdos in that, and that, right. you know, we, you would know, be like the one or two guys that always work at home and be like, what's up with that guy? But now, as we're discovering, we really all wanted, or many of us really wanted to do that from the get-go. But what it does is it, it creates some special conditions that we're adapting to and will continue to need to adapt to. So one thing I think that's very important is around setting boundaries and self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's really easy with this with your office being your guest bedroom, you know, or, or you know, right, right right there and where that computer's always there staring at you for us to get sucked into always being on and always being available. And so it's really important for us to both for ourselves to set boundaries and to be able to unplug and spend time with our families so that they can trust us and they're not like, you know, I used to have a dad and now I have this guy that, you know, works in his office all the time. So there's that, but then there's also, there's, I think it's really important for us as well to respect the boundaries of others. So if you, you know, using your email functions and features so that you're not firing off an email to your team at at 11 o'clock at night, but that you time it for delivery for the next morning so that when you turn on your computer, it goes at you know, 7.30, 8 a.m., you, whenever you turn on your computer. But that's a way of, of respecting boundaries for other people. And that sends a subtle message that you care about them and you care about their welfare, which then fosters trust
0: yes, among people.
1: The other thing is, I think that some managers are really good about this, others less so. But the import, I think the staying connected to people and having time, you know, setting up regular times with folks for one-on-ones, whether it's every every week, every couple of weeks, or whatever it is, whatever works, but making connections with people. And the other thing is, and we didn't really talk about this as much when we were talking about the research from Paul Zach and the neuroscience of trust, is there's I think a part that's really wonderful that's come up around remote working. Is now we're actually getting to see people in their real environments, you know, not all gussied up for work and you know, not in their in their work uniform. But, you know, they just their their hair is all screwed up because they just went for a run <laughs> and they got a kid tugging on their leg and the dogs barking and you know, all this stuff. It's just I think it's wonderful. And to the extent that we can make time for and allow for people to be to be human. Yeah. And to show their humanity, I think it's good for all of us. It's certainly tremendous for, for trust as well.
0: I agree. I agree. Actually, today we were on a team's call and, um, one of the guys on the team was getting ready to present and his son came by and he's like, Oh, he was you know, telling his son something. I said, no, 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 bring him in, put him on this camera. Let's say hello. And just, I mean, you're right. I mean, let's connect with him too. Let's let him know that even though that's working, Um, we're a team and he's part of the team too. give him some airtime. And so the the little kid just smiled. And so I'm like, these are moments that you to your point, we would never have exposure to, but we get a chance to connect with the team members in a a different way because we were starting to also connect to their family, their kids, their dogs, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so just remembering, just remembering to do that. I mean, some people are more just because of their Myers-Briggs type or their personality type are more task oriented, you know, and not as much, Relationship oriented, and so I think those folks have to make a little extra effort to remember. It's not like they're, you know, that they don't care about it, but they just don't think about it, and they forget the importance of establishing those those personal connections with folks and, and showing that people just that we care about people as people, mm-hmm. and we care about their whole development, and we care about their whole lives. And so, for managers, you know, even just and you know, you can even keep a little diary and, and, and take notes on, you know, son's birthday was on October 4th, you know, got a new bicycle, you know, whatever the, the details are of somebody's lives, remembering those things and, and showing that you actually were listening and not multitasking is a huge plus.
0: Well, before we wrap up, is there, because we could talk all day on this topic, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience um, before I kind of move into a fast uh, and furious round
1: of questions? So. This world that we're now in, as we with the return to work, and then a lot of companies are now having to and they're being forced to reimagine the workplace and reimagine work. And so, as we move into the next 10 years or five years or whatever past this pandemic and everything else, it's in all the you know political and economic you know uh, fault lines in, in our world today. As we move into this new world, the transformations are going to be are just huge that we're all going to be going through. We're already, you know, the speed of change is is accelerating and always has been. And it's only going to get faster and faster and more and more profound and more and more transformational. And so so the the importance of trust to being able to transform in an organization, because when we go into, when we sense that somebody, somebody's moving our cheese or that, you know, we're, we're experiencing some potential loss of, of status and, and certainty and autonomy and relatedness and fairness, I just, you know, that's the, the scarf model from, from David Rock. But as those things are impinged upon, they impinge upon people's trust because they go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And the thing that will... That sort of a magic healing salve to pull people out of that sympathetic nervous system to pull them out of that fight or flight response is in fact a trusting relationship. If I have a foundation of trust with you, and you go, I really want you to go over here, and and I, I don't have time to like explain the whole thing right now, but but you can trust me because you trusted me before, and let's let's do this thing, right? And there's a much greater chance that people will adopt that change, adapt to that change an environment of trust versus an environment of mistrust, which can just put a kibosh on the whole thing and really slow things down.
0: Awesome. So, Okay, so I'm going to say, this was fantastic, Bill. Thank you so much. I'm going to say a word or a phrase and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> What's your
1: favorite food? Tacos.
0: Oh, I love tacos too.
1: Guilty pleasure if you have one? Masterpiece theater.
0: Oh, masterpiece theater. Interesting one.
1: Favorite book or maybe a book you're reading right now? You know, I just read Sean Aker's The Happiness Advantage. I'm a big reader of positive psychology stuff, and I, I hadn't read that one yet, and I really found it delightful. I read it while I was actually on my vacation on a backpacking
0: trip. I love it. I love it. Okay. I don't imagine you watch a whole lot of TV, but if you do, do you have a, a current Netflix addiction?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I, I've kind of run out of them because because, <laughs> because of COVID and the series are, have shut down, but... Again, I'm a real, my wife and I are real period British nuts and real British Anglophiles. And, and so, British period pieces. I've loved The Crown about Queen Elizabeth. That's been just fantastic. And the other one that I am watching again, I'm, I'm, it might be for the third time, is this fabulous uh, seven year series called uh, The Durrells and the Durrells in Corfu, based on a true story about this pre World War, pre-World War II. British family that a widower with three crazy kids that moved to the Greek islands, moved to Corfu for for economic reasons, and it's a it's a tremendous fish out of water story with beautiful acting and great dialogue. is tremendous. Sounds very interesting. I have to check that out. I, have, I absolutely have to. Yeah, check. it's super funny. It's really great.
0: Well, and the last one I'll ask. So if if and when we get to travel, and I know you've done some backpacking lately, but is there a dream vacation that you and your wife have been thinking about?
1: Oh, you know, we were just talking about that, um, and we're talking about going somewhere. Now, the other part of the world that we just really love is France, because I spent my junior year abroad there, and then I worked there again for a year as a consultant in the mid-90s, and my my second son was born there, mm. and we're real Francophiles. We both speak French, and we just love it, and when people have opinions about all oh, the French or so this or so that, we're like, hmm. It's because you don't know the French, and because you don't speak the language, um, and because when you do, when you know them, oh, they're they're beautiful. They're
0: absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's amazing. Well, listen, I've enjoyed chatting with you, and I want to make sure the audience knows how to stay connected with you to get more insights on just a range of topics from a leadership development perspective. How can we stay in contact with you? LinkedIn,
1: Facebook, Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but you know, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn, but it's, but like uh, Facebook and LinkedIn are like a mullet, right? It's like, like business in the front party in the rear. So Facebook is in the back and LinkedIn is in the front. LinkedIn is the short part in the front and and Facebook is the long part in the back. So don't call me on Facebook unless you want to be my Facebook friend and and, uh, talk smack. But, um, (laughs) but LinkedIn is a good place to find me. And I I could give you my work email address. Does that work? yeah, Yeah. So that's built. I work for Ernst & Young consulting company and i can be found at bill.w.hefferman at ey.com
0: well it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure as always thank you so much bill yeah this has been so much fun thanks for listening to this week's episode of roar tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top don't forget to subscribe and share So you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available until next time.